Hey, um, we're going to go ahead and get started, and I'm uh, so, so glad that you're here uh, this afternoon. Uh, my name is Dave Clayton, and uh, I've, gotten to, I've gotten to meet a lot of you. I know a lot of you, and those of you that I haven't got to meet yet, hopefully um, I'm going to do that before we're, we're done today. I just want to give you just kind of a quick snapshot of kind of who I am, just to, to give you some context of what we're going to talk about today. And so, uh, you know, the disclaimer on the front end of this is this is not my story, not about me. Um, but I've, I've come to believe if we don't understand the perspective we're speaking from, a lot of times it's tough to make sense of, of what we're talking about. So I just want to give you a quick context of who I am and uh, what we're experimenting with in, in ministry. I think that's a key word. Uh, we're not experts uh, in any realm. In fact, the longer we do this, the, the more I come to realize how little we know. Um, and so um, we, are, we are here as experimenters and, and uh, hoping that the Spirit of God will do abundantly more than we could ask or imagine even if we don't see that or understand it. And so I want to just kind of share some of our experiments with you. My, my wife, Sydney, and I, we've been married 14 years. In fact, this past Monday was our, our 14th wedding anniversary, and I celebrated by leaving her at home. Our two, <laughs> our two youngest sons bring my oldest son with me out here to Pepperdine, so we're going to celebrate when we get back. But we've been married 14 years. Uh, we've been in full-time ministry for 16 years. The first six years uh, were in campus ministry. We planted a campus ministry had the joy of serving and leading in that context. And then the last 10 years has been with uh, church planting and disciple making in a variety of ways. And so um, uh, we celebrated the 10-year anniversary of a church we planted in downtown Nashville uh, just a few months ago. Um, we celebrated that called Ethos Church. And so kind of the way that we describe Ethos is Ethos is a um, young urban church plant in the heart of Nashville. In fact, some of the guys in the back have been a part of it, are a part of it. Um, have been uh, such a, a critical part of what we get to do. And so um, young urban church plant, um, 80% of our church is under the age of 30. And so I'm um, really young church, but that's not the totality of what we do. In fact, you know, Tom can attest he's a part of our church family and our, the demographic just keeps changing in, in really beautiful ways. But when you walk into our spaces, whether it's a Sunday morning or a house church, um, the first thing anybody from the outside ever says when they come in is, whoa, this place is young. Like, and, and I forget that, you know, and then I go speak somewhere, another church, another place, I'm like, whoa, like, we really are babies. Like, you know, you just, just walk in and, and, and you see uh, that. And so, you know, uh, our, kind of our, our ministry journey started in uh, campus ministry and then now church planning uh, with really young um, church, meet in multiple locations. We meet in bars and music venues around the city of Nashville. And then uh, beyond that, we lead this family called Onward, which is our kind of our church planting, disciple-making arm. It's, we call it our global family of leaders that are committed to church planting and disciple-making. So over the last, you know, uh, three or four years, we've got to send out lots of people to start churches and start ministries and do all sorts of fun stuff all over the world. And we do that through relational disciple-making, um, trusting that God's going to do, you know, more than we could ask or imagine. And, and so... Uh, we, we have Ethos, we have Onward, and then we have this thing called Awaken, which is our citywide initiative where we um, are mobilizing churches uh, and ministries to work together on behalf of the city. And then kind of our last thing, kind of four hats that we wear, our last thing, we call it the Man Tribe, and it's kind of our, our pet project. We have three little boys, uh, and we, we believe that's our first realm of discipleship uh, is with those boys. And we realized a few years ago, if we disciple our boys, but we don't disciple our friends, once they hit middle school, we'll, we won't have any influence over them anymore because they'll think we're idiots. And that's just how it goes. And so we thought, hey, if we're going to win at home, we've got to win their friends. And so we started this little tribe where we're discipling their friends and the dads of their friends, and it's a blast. And so all of these things, are, these are kind of areas where we're experimenting right now. And so um, what we're going to talk about today uh, you know, you probably saw this in the program. It's aimed at how do we begin to connect the dots with what's going on in culture right now, with what we're experiencing uh, among college students and on college campuses and in our churches. Because the reality is whatever hat you're wearing, whatever seat you're sitting in, um, all of us in some ways are kind of feeling the tension of, hey, things are shifting. Um, what do we do about that? And, and I just want to say this as explicitly as I know how. Um, you know, the stats are in. Everybody's bummed about you know, where culture's headed, I go, we could spend the rest of our life being upset about it, or we could just really anchor in and go, hey, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and we could say, hey, he's put us on earth in this season for a reason, so what are we going to do? do about it? And so um, I, am, I am filled with hope, um, I'm filled with excitement, and uh, I'm filled with the reality that, yeah, we do have a challenge before us, 
Um, but God put, I believe God put you on earth for such a time as this. And I remember a couple of years ago, I was, I was just really kind of overwhelmed by the task at hand. And Sydney and I were talking about it. And she made a comment to me that just has stuck with me. She said if she needed Moses to lead in 2017, she, God would have saved him to have been born and put on earth at this time. But he didn't need Moses now. He, he needs people like us. And I'm like, whoa, okay. That's a perspective, you know. And I believe you're here on planet earth for such a time as this. And, and, and God's got something great for us. And so that's what I want us to dream about just a little bit. I want to pray uh, over our time. And then kind of my goal is to hopefully give us some things that will maybe not be a formula for you, but a framework for thinking about the context that God's put you in. And so a formula says, hey, if you do this and this, it always works out this way. I'm not giving you a formula. Can you just shake your heads if you understand this is not a formula, okay? But I do want to give you a framework that will maybe help you go back and say, okay, I don't know if that'll work here, you know, wherever you are, but maybe it will help you see where you're at, maybe in a good way. And so that'll be the goal. So let me pray, and I will jump in. God, I love you, and I thank you so much just for the gift and the privilege and the opportunity of getting a share with my brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Um, Lord, I have no idea what you are trying to say and do in their context, but God, I'd ask that you would not let me say anything that would distract from what you're doing. Uh, Lord, if I say anything today that would slow down your unique work in any other context, God, would you help them to forget it? Don't even let it, don't even let them get stuck on it anyway. But God, if there's something you have from me or from you through me for them, God, would you let it bear fruit? Would you let me be utterly forgettable, Jesus? Would you be not ignorable? Would you speak to us today in such a way that the kingdom advances where we're at? In the name of Jesus, I pray and give thanks. Amen. Amen. Uh, so I'm going to draw some pictures because it's the way that I think. And so, you know, some of my friends that know me, anytime we go to lunch, I'm always drawing on napkins. And it's just the way that I remember things. And so um, maybe this will kind of help you um, think about our, our context. You know, uh, a verse that stuck with me years ago. Uh, my dad's a, a preacher as well. And I was probably 18 years old. And he just, in a passing conversation, uh, he said, Dave, he said, my prayer for you is that you'll be like the men of this Sakar." that you'll understand the times, and that you'll know what needs to be done. And there's something about that, just that little passing conversation that has just stuck with me, that um, when, when culture is shaking, when things are shifting and changing, um, you don't need managers, you need leaders. And I think the mark of a leader is somebody that by the power of God's Spirit has the, under, that the ability to understand the times, to understand what's going on, but to not just have understanding of the times, but to then know what needs to be done. Uh, because the reality is if you just understand the times, especially the times that we're in, all it does is stir up panic. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, and so, uh, you know, you read all the blogs and read all the podcasts and read all the books. It's like, okay, I've got a great understanding that things are shrinking and things are going backwards. And it's like, okay, I understand that clearly. And so I'm not just, uh, I don't want us to just be uh, women and men that understand the times. I want us to be the types of people that understand the times and know what needs to be done. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I want to take the first kind of portion of the day to, to go, okay, how do we begin to understand the times? Like, what are, what are some of the things that we, we do to understand the times? And then kind of the second half of the conversation, I want to go, and what does it look, look like to do something about the times that we're in? And I'm just going to give you a couple of suggestions for that. And so I think when it, when it comes to understanding the times, there's really kind of three lens that we need to look through. And maybe some of this will relate. Kind of the first is the personal lens. And so I'll just kind of draw this stick figure. And, and, and this is, uh, you know, this little line kind of represents the arc of a human being's life, okay? And I think, I think one of the challenges in ministry for us as we think about how we're ministering to real people with real struggles and real stories and real opportunities is, is people come to us in all sorts of different places. And part of our job as leaders is to kind of help them experience the last two verses of Psalm 139, right? Psalm 139, 23 through 24, you know, it's that moment where David says, Lord, would you search me? Would you know me? Would you test me? And then I love what he says, and he says, and then would you lead me? He's like, hey, I need you to help me see me the way that you see me. That's, that's kind of the, the, the plea of, of David's heart in Psalm 139, and I think one of our, our goals in ministry, when people come to us, or when we come to them, is to kind of do what Jesus did with the woman at the well, right? He kind of um, metaphorically reaches down into her soul, and for the first time, she really begins to see herself. Like, she had a history. She had a, 
She had a biography. And the reality, and uh, if you're taking notes or holding on to this, I think this is important on a personal level. For us to understand that every person's biography is ultimately affecting, affecting their understanding of their destiny. That their biography is affecting their understanding of their destiny. And so they come, they come to us or we come to them and they come with all sorts of joy and hopes and dreams and brokenness and pain and sin and everything. And that's not just the stories that people are ministering to. It's also our stories, right? And so, so part of, if we want to understand the times, we have to understand the, the people that are right in front of us. It's this, it's this sort of this personal level um, this biography, it's this personal history, you know, it's, it's the personal level of ministry here. And, and uh, what, what's important about this, and I think we're seeing this all across our culture right now, not just in church, but all across our culture is, is our culture is, has this fascination with understanding ourselves. And part of this is good, and part of this is idolatrous. Part of, part of the reason we want to understand ourselves is because we live in a culture that worships ourselves. And so we have to understand that this can be a dangerous thing, but I, I think in the kingdom of God, it's a really beautiful thing. It's, it's a good thing for a person to understand both their strengths and their weaknesses, the, the areas where God has broken through in their life, and the area where they're still experiencing barriers in the kingdom. All of this stuff is good. And so the current fascination with the Enneagram. You know, is, is an example. I think I'm like the last dude on earth that has not taken it. And so, um, Jim has it. Wow, okay, I've got another person. Um, you know, um, whether it's a personality test, I, I think this is a part of the resurgence in a really good way uh, for counseling and therapy and um, inner soul work. And all these things are good things, you know, where, where people are going, hey, we want to understand ourselves. And part of us being leaders that understand the times means we have to be the kinds of leaders that understand the very real people that are experiencing life in the times that we're in. Does that make sense? Okay, so it's kind of the first arc. This, the second arc is not just about the people, but it's about the place with the, in which those people are living, okay? And so this is kind of like the bigger story. This is the place, okay? And so I'll draw a kind of outline of a city here for you, okay? And so it's kind of bad drawing. It doesn't matter. So um, every person that you're ministering to they were not born in a vacuum, right? Just, does that make sense? They, they weren't born in isolation, even if they think they were, even if they don't understand how their story fits in the bigger story, their story fits in a bigger story. And, and you can break this down in a lot of ways. This could be the story of their family unit. This could be the story of the neighborhood they grew up in. This could be the story of the city or of their race or of their gender. You can break this down in all sorts of ways. Um, but everybody's a part of multiple bigger stories, right? And, and part of our job as leaders is not just to help people understand the story they've been living in individually, but to help them understand the story uh, that has been going on before they were born and the story that will continue after they're dead and where they find themselves in the midst of it. And so, you know, one of the things that's really interesting to me, like whenever we're working with a church planter or a campus minister and we, and we show up uh, in a new spot, it's to go, hey, what is the spiritual story of the place to which you've gone? Because every place you go has a spiritual story. It has areas of light. It has areas of darkness. It has areas where that culture is going to be receptive to Jesus. It has areas where that culture is going to be um, resistant to Jesus. And, and how do you begin to understand that in the culture that you're in? That's a, that's a really kind of important part of the journey. And so, um, you know, what, some of the ways that we do this is as we sit down um, with those that have found themselves both on the winning side of history and on the losing side of history. And so, you know, when, for instance, I, I live in Nashville, and Nashville has a story. You know, a couple of years ago, I just said, hey, I'm going to spend some time just understanding the history of the city that I'm in. And the way that you learn a person's biography is you sit down and you do this relationally, right? Um, a lot of this begins with research, though. So I just started literally reading, what's the history of the city? And finding out what happened, and I'm researching. You know, this starts with stories. A lot of times this starts with statistics. And so I'm, I'm, getting to know, I'm getting to know the stories. And then all of a sudden it's like, okay, how do I begin learning from both sides of history in our city? Because the reality is the winners always write the history books, right? And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the history books, and I'm reading what's going on, and then I start thinking about, okay, who's on the other side of that story? And where do I go in our city to begin finding that? And it, it, here's, what's, here's what's amazing. 
is I started looking at our city and I started realizing, whoa, okay, some of our areas of personal breakthrough that I'm experiencing on the ministerial level, so many of these areas of personal breakthrough are in line with the areas where our city story is already receptive to the gospel. And so many of our areas of personal challenge are areas where our city is resistant to the things of the gospel. Wow, okay, God, what are you trying to tell me there? And so part of our job, I think, as, as leaders, if we're going to be like the men or the women of Issachar, you know, to, to be able to see the times, to understand. And part of that is to be able to see, okay, the people that are right in front of us, what's the story they're living in? And then to understand what's the bigger story they're living in. So, for instance, uh, the folks in our church that have grown up in the South their whole life and are living in Nashville, they've been living in a very different story than the ones that have come to us from New York City or Seattle, Washington or small town in Kentucky or Malibu or wherever. It's a very different. So all of a sudden they're in a new place. They have their same biography, but they're living in a place that has its own unique history, right? And so um, this, this is a part of our work of leaders. And I, and I think you're beginning to see this where this is happening a lot. Um, where, where people begin to wake up to the reality of the bigger story, and they begin to respond, you know, um, you know, they begin to awaken to these sort of things. And here's what I would propose. Connecting the dots between these two things is very, very important. It's very, very important. But if we only connect the dots between these two things, what we typically end up with is two, uh, one of two options. One is we react. We react to the bigger story. We push against it. You see this all the time when students go to college, right? And they, they throw off all of the stuff that they had from their, their family. Like, they don't even know why they're doing it. They're just like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm trying my own way. Like, they, they react. That's the way that they do it. Or, or number two, they reinforce. You know, maybe they liked the bigger story that they were living in. And so their biography begins to reinforce Positive and negative, you know, depending on what story you're reacting to or, or reinforcing. This can, be a, this can be a good or bad thing, right? Does that make sense? But this is, this is what's going on with, I would argue, with every person we're trying to minister to. And for us to understand that as we are trying to form them, you know, this, this struck me years ago as we're trying to make disciples in our context. I'm going, we're trying to make disciples and then the moment they leave us, they're going back out into this story where they're getting discipled by the culture for 167 hours. And I go, whoa, okay, if we don't understand that, if we don't see it, how do we begin to, to win that? Now, here's what I want to propose. This is kind of the last part of beginning to, to understand the times. I think this is important, but if we stop here, we end up with reaction or reinforcement, okay? I think there's something much bigger up here. And this is what I would call the God story. It's the redemptive story. It's, it's the gospel. It, it's the kingdom story. It's, it's the promises that Jesus has made. It's the, the work that God has been doing. And until we begin to actually connect the dots all the way, um, I don't think we ever get to the thing that we're actually after. And what happens when we begin to connect the dots between these three realities, I don't think anymore we have reaction or reinforcement, but I think what we end up with is redemption. It's where all of a sudden we as individuals who are living in the midst of a unique moment in time get to be a part of God's redemptive reality. Because this is the moment where not only do we, we get to partner in bringing the kingdom of heaven down to earth, but there's something about understanding this that also begins to lift our eyes beyond the stuff that we're in. Does that make sense? And I know this is kind of big. We're kind of talking meta here, but this is, this is really, really important. And so, like, one of the things, like, as I'm discipling, like, uh, I'm getting ready to start discipling uh, a new guy in two weeks, and he and I are going to begin this journey together. And he and I have been talking about this. One of the things I've been saying to him is, hey, hey, your job as a pastor is not just to know this story and then to just walk with people through their issues. Your job as a leader is to be able to see this and to go, hey, God, how do I help bring all this down into this person's life? Whoa. <laughs> so that everything can elevate, right? Now, like, how, how do I partner to, to bring that all the way down? So then they're sent out as missionaries into the God story, right? And so for us, understanding, understanding, this is 
understanding time. So what does it look like to begin bringing this down? A couple years ago, I was just asking God, God, in the midst of all of the stuff we're seeing with individual lives and all the stuff we're experiencing in the hard cultural Christianity, the soil that I'm in, Lord, what does it look like for there to be breakthrough in this? And the Lord gave, gave me a really interesting image that has just stuck with me, and I'm just going to share it with you. And I'm not saying this is for you, but like maybe this would be a framework that will help you think about, okay, once we begin to understand what's happening, what, what do we do about it? And, and this is the image that the Lord gave me. is an image of an arrowhead. Let's see here. Let's try this. Marker. It's an image of an arrowhead kind of coming down into, in, into the, the soil of our city, okay? So, remember remember this arc right here, okay? So it was an image of an arrowhead coming down and piercing the hard soil of our city, and the arrowhead is really broken up into four blocks, okay? So right here on the, the tip of the arrowhead was prayer and fasting. Right here in the next spot was disciple-making, the third level was church planting, and at the top was culture shaping. And the image, the image that I saw was, okay, as, as the Lord begins to drive these things, like his story, all the way down to the hearts of a human being. All the way down. Um, the final result will be a culture that, that looks like Jesus, loves Jesus, honors Jesus, reflects Jesus. That's the, that's the end game, not the starting point, you know. Um, but the question is, how, how do we begin uh, to get there? And so um, these are just kind of four ways, like once, once we kind of step back and see what's going on, here, here's, some, here's some stuff where we're experimenting. I'll, just, I'll tell you about kind of each one of these uh, for just a moment, and then hopefully we'll have some time to take questions, okay? So the first, the, the, the first part is prayer and fasting. You know, for us, uh, you know, several years ago, um, God started calling our family into a lot of different global contexts. We were planting some churches globally, and then God started inviting us uh, to go work with leaders all over the world. And we spent uh, the better part of about two years coming and going from Nashville out to, to places all over the world. And we saw God doing amazing things. But one of the common denominators that we saw in every place where like, the kingdom of God was just thriving one of the common denominators we saw in every place was a rich and deep commitment to prayer and fasting. And I remember I had no idea why. Like, it was, it was, it was mind-boggling to us. We thought, what's going on? Like, how is that connected to this? Have you ever had one of those moments where you see something and you go, okay, we saw it in Uganda and in Kenya and in India and in Portugal. It's like we're seeing it and we're going, but how is this thing connected to this thing? Like, how is prayer and fasting connected to spiritual, like, vibrancy that we're seeing? But we came back and... And God really began to just stir our hearts for this. Uh, we really began to believe that prayer and fasting is not a silver bullet, but, but that it is, it is a thing that God uses to shift the heart of a disciple, to change the culture of a church, and to open up things in the spiritual realm so that the kingdom of God can break into a city. And, uh, you know, I could spend weeks talking on this. I'm just taking a couple of minutes, and so... It's going to be entirely insufficient. But you know, three years ago, we, we, we really made this decision, hey, we're going to commit as a church to tithing our year in prayer and fasting. We're going to, we're going to tithe our year. We're going to give 10% of our time together as a family towards prayer and fasting. And so we, we take 30 days at the beginning of every year. We pray and fast for 30 days on behalf of the city that we're in. We take the first Wednesday of every month. We pray and fast. We take uh, typically 10 to 15 minutes in a Sunday worship gathering, and we pray corporately together. We get in groups, and we talk, and we pray. We take the last two hours of every Sunday night as a church, and we pray together. We take the first 21 days of August, and we pray together. So you know, there, there became this commitment where we said, hey, God, we think that what you want to do in not just our people's personal biographies, but what you're trying to unleash in the city, we are convinced, God, that it's not going to come through preaching or through great programs or through our strategic plans. It's only going to come as we humble ourselves before you, Jesus, open ourselves up to who you are and ask you to do more. And so we started with this uh, deep commitment to, to prayer and fasting. It's been really fun kind of what's unfolded. I'll just tell you a couple quick stories. The first year we did it, um, uh, we lost a bunch of people in our church. It didn't go well. So if you're looking to grow your church, <laughs> prayer and fasting is not the strategy to do it. 
Um, uh, people thought we were becoming a cult, and they did not know what was happening. And so we learned a lot of great lessons that first year. But we, we stuck with it because we went, hey, um, God, we think, we think, you know, this is what Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 8. He says, if you want to find your life, you have to what? Help me out. You have to lose it, right? And, um, and I'm like, whoa, that's crazy. So in a culture marked by self-fulfillment, how do we build people that are following a Jesus marked by self-denial? And I go, man, for us, we realize, man, so much of our church's journey, we were unintentionally just feeding the beast of self-fulfillment. And for us, prayer and fasting became this place where uh, we became people of the cross. You know, self-denial um, became an important part. And it's amazing what God begins to, to show and to do and to work among the church family. And you do that. So we, we started this journey of prayer and fasting as a church, and God started opening up all sorts of stuff. And here's what's amazing. We started experiencing all kinds of breakthrough on the personal level. And then God started showing us uh, things on behalf of the city. This isn't at all surprising. And so last year, in the middle of our, uh, our season of prayer and fasting, um, we really sensed that God was saying, hey, next year, invite other churches in on this. And we want you, as a church family, um, it, this was the, the language that he gave us, to, uh, to raise up a strategic prayer warrior on behalf of every man, woman, and child in the city. I want you to raise up somebody to pray for every person in the city by name for 30 days. And I'm like, okay, Lord, it's a big deal. And then I ran into Tom. I hadn't told anybody this. I ran into Tom at our prayer gathering that Sunday night. Tom walks up to me, and at the end of our prayer gathering that night, I didn't even want to be there, honestly. I was just there because I'm the pastor, and I had to be there. <laughs> and it was just one of those nights. I was tired, and I was just cashing it in. But I was there at prayer, and we get to the end of prayer, and he walks up to me and said, Dave, I don't know why I'm supposed to tell you this. He said, but did you know it's possible for you to get a list of the names of every person that lives in the city of Nashville and their addresses? And I'm like, what the fuck? And uh, he said, I think you're supposed to get the list so we can pray for those people. And we went out and got the list, and immediately I was depressed because it was a huge list. I mean, it was like, we could never, ever, ever do this. Um, but we, we started calling in other churches. So this past September, we started calling churches together. And I remember when the first church said yes, it was us and one other church. And it's like, man, it's going to take us a decade to do this. It's going to take us forever. Because the vision was, we're going to pray and fast for every person by name for 30 days, and then write them a handwritten note. Let them know how much it mattered to God. So hundreds of thousands of households representing, you know, 1.6 million people or something. And so at first it was just our church and then another church. You know, in October it was 100 churches. You know, November it was 200 churches. December, you know, 250. By the time we started the 30 days of fasting in January, 418 churches were in on this. All across the city, every denomination, big, small, young, old, church plants, traditional, non-traditional. We had 100 churches that are non-English speaking that were part of this. And uh, for 30 days, 40,000 prayer warriors coming together, praying and fasting over their list of names. And then at the end of it, writing a, a letter. And man, it's amazing what we started seeing God do on the personal level. All kinds of breakthrough, people coming to the Lord, people getting healed, people getting right with God. I mean, I could take the rest of our time just testifying. I mean, Maybe I'll tell some stories later if we have time, but all sorts of stuff happening on the personal, but then incredible things happening on the citywide level. You know, we, we had churches uh, who had never, like one of my favorite stories was we'd get these pastors together to kind of mobilize them for this time of prayer and fasting. And this one day I had a group of pastors in the room and I started it out, you know, maybe about a group this size, you know, and I'm going around the room, what church are you with? And there's these two pastors sitting at the same table and one says where he's from, and the other guy says, I'm the pastor of the church across the street from you. And they'd both been, they'd been there for 20 years. They'd never met each other. Never met each other. And they literally, in the moment, repented of that reality, made the commitment for the next 30 days their churches would pray and serve together. And here we are two months after the fast, and their churches are just like BFFs. I mean, they're just like working together, totally different streams, totally different backgrounds, but now they're impacting the neighborhood. And what's been cool is the people around them are going, what just happened? Because you know what Jesus says in John 17 is true. That his ministry uh, receives credibility when we walk in unity. He says the world will know, the world will know that I was sent. Why? Because the way you love each other. Like, and so there's credibility to the, the lordship and the sonship of Jesus when we start loving each other and walking that out. And this happened where? It happened not because we had this strategic, hey, let's get everybody together and we're going to, have a unity movement, it's, no, we're going to humble ourselves before the Lord in prayer and fasting. 
and we're going to see what God is going to do. And, and we're beginning to just see the ripple effects of, um, you know, even the kinds of people that are beginning to come to faith in Jesus. It's, it's been just an amazing thing. And so uh, for us, the way you start bringing this down to the ground is through prayer and fasting, which I think is really good news because some of you are maybe in a ministry context where you're going, man, I don't know. I don't know what the future of our ministry is. And I don't know if, if our little church has much to say to people in this cultural moment or into a city in this cultural moment. And I go, but, but you know what you can do? You can start in a place of prayer and fasting and I go, God is a God who specializes in the impossible. Yeah. He's the impossibility specialist. That's who he is. And as we humble ourselves before him, as we submit ourselves to him, as we, as we walk in reverence saying, hey, it's, it's not our plans, it's not our strategies, it's not our ways, it's you. Would you do this thing, Lord? Would you move? He's like, man, I love, I love when your back's against the Red Sea. I love it. Watch this. Watch this. And I think it starts in this place of prayer and fasting. But it's not just prayer and fasting. Number two, it's disciple making. And so this isn't, I want you to see this, even though it kind of lines up in a linear fashion, it's not... It's not so much linear. It's these things that are working together, right? And so um, disciple-making, and I know we're at a church conference, and I know, I know this should just be like par for the course, but here's what is stunning to me. I think, I think we know how to do church, but we don't always know how to do discipleship. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think when, when, you, when you start churches or when you manage churches, you don't always end up with disciples, <laughs> But when you make disciples, you always end up with something that looks like the church that Jesus is leading. And I think those two things are connected, but if the disciple-making doesn't come first, what comes out of it isn't always the thing that we're after. Now, the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. He can do whatever he wants to do. And so I've seen him take a lot of um, you know, things that started backwards and do miracles in it. But I go, disciple-making, um, not only was it the primary focus of Jesus' time on earth, it was his primary commandment to all of us as his followers as he was getting ready to return to heaven and to put the keys of the kingdom in our hands right and so i love that moment in john chapter 17 verses 3 and 4 where where jesus is getting ready to head into the garden of gethsemane going to the cross and i love this statement you can go home and read it later where he tells the father he says i've finished the work that you've asked me to do and i I remember years ago reading that i'm like what's he finished at this point He hasn't, I mean, he's done a lot of great things. I don't mean that like sacrilegiously. He's done a lot of great things. But I'm going, he hadn't died for the sins of the world. He hadn't raised from the dead. Like, um, I'm like, what's the work he's finished? And, and he goes on, he spends the rest of the, the chapter talking about the disciples he had made. Like that Jesus' primary goal was not just to get the disciples into heaven. It was to get heaven into the disciples. And he knew when heaven would come all the way down into the disciples, the kingdom of heaven would begin to spread. It's amazing to me, Jesus, this nomadic, itinerant preacher who never traveled more than 60 miles from the place that he was born, never had a picture taken of himself, never wrote a book, never got on an airplane, never led an army, never had a single employee. He has somehow managed to put his fingerprints on every nook and cranny of society. How? How? Disciple making. That's it. Not only was... It, the best strategy then, it is the best and only strategy now. And so, so the goal is not just going, okay, here's what's going on in their life and here's what's going on in our city. How do we get them into a church where we can just like pep them up for a little bit so they can survive the crazy family in our terrible city? That's not the goal of ministry. <laughs> the goal of ministry is how do we help them live as disciple makers with Jesus? Does that make sense? And so, you know, for us, like in our church, we're going, okay, one, do we even know what a disciple is? You know, I'll sit down with church leaders uh, in different contexts, and one of the first questions I'll always ask when I sit down with the team is, hey, pull out a piece of paper. I want all of you to just write down what's a disciple. And if you have six people in a room, you have six different definitions. And a lot of times their definitions are all right or almost right or partially right. But here's what's amazing. If you were a football coach and – you knew that you were calling in a play to the, the huddle and, and the quarterback was going to call the play and everyone in the, the huddle had a different understanding of that play. What's going to happen at the line of scrimmage? It's going to be a mess. Mm-hmm. And I go, you know, so for us just going, hey, 
Uh, do we have agreement on the fact that this is our mission? Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and so this is what I want you to do with your lives. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. I'm going to be with you always in this process, right? Really, really good news. <laughs> he doesn't just give us a playbook. He gives us his presence. So it's like really, really good news. He says, but I want you to be disciple makers. And, and so for us, we're going, okay, what is a disciple? How do we do that? And so, you know, the definition that we use is we say a disciple is somebody that's following Jesus. Number two is being transformed by Jesus. And number three is committed to the ways and the words and the works of Jesus. Following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, character and competency, and is committed to the ways and the words and the works of Jesus. That's what, that's what a disciple is. I remember years ago, uh, our dryer broke at our house, and we called a guy to come fix it, and this guy named Robert shows up at our house, and um, you know, he shows up, and there's another younger man with him. Robert was probably in his early 50s. He shows up with a guy at least 15 years younger than him. And uh, Robert looks at us and says, hey, I'm the guy that you called and hired to come here. This is my friend Jeffrey. He's my apprentice. And, and I'm going to teach him how to do what I'm doing today. And he said, you're only paying for one of us, and you're not paying by the hours. It's going to take us twice as long to do it because I'm going to show him how to do it. It's going to be fixed really well. It's going to take us a little bit longer than normal. Uh, I just want you to understand what I'm doing. And I'm sitting here like, wow, I'm, I'm about to get a lesson in discipleship. Didn't even know it from the guy that's here to fix our jar. So he walks into our house with his young apprentice and just immediately starts teaching him everything. He says, I come in, I put these things on my shoes like, so I don't make a mess. And I say hello to the kids and the wife, but I don't do it in a way that's creepy. I mean, I mean he's, like, he's saying it all out loud. He's like, be friendly, but not too friendly. Don't be flirty. And like, you know, and don't, don't touch the kids. And he's just... I, and I'm like watching this. I'm like, this is a gold mine. This is amazing. And, and, he, and he comes in and he pulls out the dryer. And I'm, I'm there with my youngest son and, or with my middle son. We're playing on the ground. And he's like, okay, here's what I would do next. What would you do? And they're just talking. And he spends an hour and a half at our house fixing this dryer. And they walk out and I went, man, um, not only is this guy like getting the job done, but he's multiplying himself. It's discipleship. I go, this is discipleship. Now, discipleship is not just sitting in church for the rest of our lives regurgitating the stories of what life used to be like when God was here. It's not discipleship. Discipleship is how do we train people to walk with Jesus who is still here with us, among us, by the power of the Holy Spirit in the context of the body of Christ. Like how do we train people to, to do that? And so like, as we're thinking about whether it's our children or the people in our ministry, the, the folks that are coming to us that are living in a really complex cultural moment, the sort of questions we have to ask ourselves are, do these people think like Jesus, talk like Jesus, feel like Jesus? Can they do what Jesus did? I mean, that's what Jesus was sending the disciples out to do. Remember John 14? He said, if you love me and obey me, you're going to do even greater things than I've done. It's like, whoa. John 16, it's to your benefit that I'm going away because I'm sending you the Holy Spirit, and you're going to get far more done once he's indwelling you than when I'm just here instructing you. And I go, wow, like this, this is the mission of Jesus. And so for us, it's in this, this place of disciple-making, and it's slow, it's messy. It took Jesus three years with a group of guys that he lived with, day in and day out. And at the end of the ministry, one had him killed. They all ran and quit. Like it, I mean, really bad odds. You know, like, so you know, if you think you can do this over the course of six weeks in a Wednesday night Bible class, like, not going to work. Life on life. Pulling the God story all the way down into, into every nook and cranny of life. This, this, is where, this is where it really gets fun. You know? And so prayer and fasting begins to open up the culture, begins to break the ground. But, but disciple making for us has become the place where we really begin to go, okay, God, like how, how do we do this? And for us, as we think about disciple making, it, it's just coming to terms with the fact that, okay, maybe it took Jesus three years, and for me it's going to take a decade. Think about it, there's this one guy that I've been discipling. We're in year 13 right now. 13 years. And, and I go, one, just because I'm just not as good as Jesus. And two, this guy's just real sinful, you know. <laughs> and I, um, and I, it, just, it, just, it just takes a while. There's another guy I've been walking with for seven years. Another guy that I'm starting with next to There's some guys that I walk with in shorter seasons. You know, my, my wife walks with people in different seasons of life. 
um, we're walking with our kids in discipleship right now. And you know, I was telling you about those dads that we're pulling in. And uh, we have this journey. And we told them when we pulled the dads and we're casting vision, we said, hey, this is, I'm inviting you into a 12-year journey. And they're like, whoa. You know, some of the dads quit immediately. And I'm like, okay, that's good. I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're out now because this is the most important realm of disciple making for us. If, if we build a church and we win our city, but I lose my kids, it's like, man, I'm going to grieve the rest of my life. But, so, you know, for us, going, hey, how do we drive this thing all, all the way down, both the character of Jesus and the competencies? Can we do what he did? Are we doing what he did, right? And so, so how are we trying to do this? It's with an emphasis on prayer and fasting. We talked a long time about prayer and fasting. With an emphasis on disciple-making. I wish we had more time. We could talk a long time on disciple-making. Lots of questions there, I'm sure. And then the third place is church planting. You know, uh, for us, why do we plant churches? I, um, I, I get this all the time. Uh, people will say, don't we have enough churches? Especially in Nashville. People drive by and they go, don't you have enough churches? Well, one, we have a lot of church buildings. So let's, let's differentiate. We're not talking about the same thing here, okay? So you passed a lot of church buildings, yes. Um, but our understanding of what church is is different. And, you know, I, 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 believe, I believe church, uh, although we all meet in buildings and use them as a tool and a resource, Churches are communities, in the best sense, churches are spirit-filled communities living under the lordship of Jesus for the purpose of making disciples to the ends of the earth. They're disciple-making outposts, hubs, communities. Like that, that, That's what they are. And, and what, what I know is in my city, and I don't know the stats on your city, in our city, um, which is growing rapidly, by the way, right now, um, currently there's more than 900,000 people in our city that have zero connection to a a Christian community of faith. 900,000 people. Um, if, every, if every church in the city was operating at full capacity as a disciple-making unit, we couldn't even come close to touching that mass of people. And so for us, the, the, the question is not, um, well, should we plant more churches or work with the staff? It's all of it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, we're, we're looking at our city, and I'm going, just to reach the city, we're believing and praying that God would help us raise up between seven and 9,000 new leaders over the next decade to help reach the city. Uh, some of them will start small churches. Some of them will start big churches. Some of them will. It's going to take an all hands on deck. You know, we've broken the city down by neighborhood going, what does it look like to, to release bivocational missionaries into every residential street in the city? What does it look like to raise up strategic church plants in behalf of every people group that's unclaimed, unreached in the city. You go, why? Because this is what Jesus asked us to do. And sometimes we talk about this and people go, wow, that's a big vision. I go, we stole it. It's just straight from Jesus. Like he, <laughs> that, that's, you know, that's the, that's the commission. He's getting ready to, to leave. He had already given them the great commission. And he's, he's, he's getting ready to just like fly up. He's like, he's like whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> You're going to receive power. <laughs> Almost forgot to tell you. You're going to receive power, and you're going to be my witnesses where? Help me out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, into the earth. Okay, two of you have read your Bibles. That's good. Um, <laughs> he says, hey, he said, that's a huge mission. Like, don't you know, you know, the most type A apostle, we don't know who it was. You know, like, he's sitting there going, whoa, Jesus, what's the strategy for that? Like. How are we getting to Rome? When are we getting to Rome? This year, next year, next quarter? What's the, what's the funding for this thing? Judas already stole the money. Like, things aren't good. Like, how are we going to fund that? Like, and, and, and Jesus said, I'm just telling you where it's going. I'm just telling you where I'm taking you. That's what's going to happen. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And one of the things that we've been realizing is, hey, I don't want to show up in your city and talk about the Great Commission unless I'm interesting in, interested in fulfilling it in my city. I've got no moral authority to come to your city and talk about the Great Commission if I'm not trying to live it out on my own. You know, we as Christians do that all the time. You know, like, people show up and speak at our conferences and, hey, what's going on in your city? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, okay. Um, but but I, go, I, think this is, I think this is part of it for us. Going, okay, how do we break the ground with a commitment to prayer and fasting? How do we make disciples that make disciples? How do we unleash new communities of faith and coffee shops, and parks, and old buildings, and sanctuaries, and living rooms, big and small, you know, like traditional, missional, whatever language you want to use, it's going gonna, it's gonna to take an all-hands-on-deck kind of effort to reach the culture if we're going to do what Jesus asks us to do. 
And last but not least is culture shaping. It's culture shaping. It's the moment where no longer are we as followers of Jesus copying the culture, but the, cop, the culture begins to copy us. And from our current vantage point, it is hard to even imagine a scenario where that happens. You know, like I think about, I think about the world that we're in right now, and it's like whatever is on Christian radio is just an imitation of what was on secular radio two years ago, right? Like, um, you know, we see what's going on in the world and we copy it. We see apps that the world's creating, we copy it. And usually what we do is we copy it, but we do a slightly worse version of it because we have less money <laughs> and we don't have celebrities helping us, you know? So um, we, we imitate, we copy. But here's what I think happens is I think whenever the, the, the God story comes all the way down into the human life, it becomes so contagious, so beautiful, the world begins to see it and they go, wait, we want that. We, we want to do life the way that you're doing life. We want to do marriage the way that you're doing it. We want to parent the way that you're parenting. We want to... Uh, experience the freedom with our finances the way that you do. And I believe that the culture begins to copy. I'll just give you uh, a quick example of this. There's a guy in our church who, um, just an amazing dude, has such a cool story. He's an uh, Olympic gold medalist in the 80s as a swimmer. Um, he uh, had tons of success as a real estate agent and businessman um, all over the southeast. And then God just began to just get a hold of his heart. And he'd, he'd been a follower of Jesus through that whole journey, but God began to just, like, get a hold of him about a decade ago. And he thought, Lord, you've given me this crazy platform. How can I make sure Jesus is the only one standing on it? And so he started doing this thing where he just started asking the question, you know, where, where is the place in our city where if I could make a dent by the power of the Holy Spirit would have the greatest cultural impact? And he started looking at what was happening in Nashville. And Nashville right now is just booming. The economy's booming. Business is booming. People are coming. And he thought, what if I can make a dent amongst, uh, amongst businessmen and businesswomen of the city? And so in a very similar way, he, just, he started kind of this disciple-making effort amongst business leaders uh, in, in the community. He and his wife moved into the heart of the city. And uh, I could tell you story after story. His name's Dave Wilson. I could tell you story after story about Dave and Drew and kind of what they're doing in the city. Uh, but uh, I'll just tell you a few. So, uh, you know, what Dave started doing was he'd get together with non-Christian businessmen whose, whose uh, lives were falling apart, and he'd, just say, he'd say, hey, um, what's the greatest pressure point in work and family and business, whatever? Just what, what are the pressure points? And then he'd get together with guys that were just totally succeeding, not yet interested in Jesus, and say, hey, what, what are the areas of greatest joy? What's working? What are your pressure points? He started looking at that. And just started asking Jesus, hey, what does the gospel speak into all of these things? And so he started doing these things uh, called these um, hot night events where he would get, he'd get um, business leaders together around uh, cultural hot button issues. He'd rent out uh, a bar. He'd rent out a, a country club. He'd rent out a place that they wanted to be in. And he'd say, hey, we're going to come together. And tonight for an hour, we're going to talk about sex in the workplace big hot topic you know with the me too movement we're just going to talk about what to do what not to do and for the first hour he lets non-christian guys just lead the conversation here's what we're wrestling with here's what here's what we're doing here's what we're not doing here's why we're doing it and then at the end of at the end of every conversation at the end of every one of these hot night events he'll stand up he paid for dinner he paid for everything so he said i'll let you guys talk and i'm going to end the night by i'm going to take 15 minutes and i'm just going to tell you what the gospel has to say about this thing we're talking about. And so there's this moment where he invites all of them in, in their own pain and brokenness. He invites all of them in, in the cultural moment that they're living in, and he lets them talk and just feel the chaos of it. And then for 15 minutes, he just <laughs> brings it down, boom. And, and he'll do this for a month in a row, four Thursday nights in a row. He'll just do these hot nights. And he gets to the end of it, and he says, hey, if any of you are curious about more, he said, we got, a, we got a group, you know, I'd love for you to come to and meet at this office complex and this one over here and this one over here. And we meet on Thursday mornings before work. And if you want to keep talking, we can keep talking. So he brings them into a Bible study. And if they like that, then he brings them into this thing uh, called the Iron Man. Um, his wife leads the Iron Women. And it's, it's a two-year discipleship journey for business leaders where they take them through Christian apologetics and missional practices in the workplace. They go through the entirety of Scripture, you know, over the course of two years, all this. And uh, in the last several years, he's discipled over 300 businessmen in the city who are doing unbelievable stuff. And 
And now these guys are creating companies and doing things that people are showing up in Nashville going, hey, we want to learn from this guy. And, and, and you know they're Christians. <laughs> and it's like, whoa. And now he and I are sitting down going, hey, I wonder if we could do that with arts and entertainment. I wonder if we could do that with education. I wonder if we could do that in the family. I'll tell you another story. Got a, got a couple in our church we've been thinking about. How do we do this with, with young families? Because something happens when people get in their 30s and they start having kids and they just lose their minds. It's like they start worshiping their kids and their, their marriages are falling apart and things have happened and they get scared to death. Their kids go to middle school and technology destroys them. It's like, what do you do? Like, and so we just started asking, hey, how do we bring people who are just living the good life, that John 10-10 life, how do we bring parents that are living that John 10-10 life all the way down into the pressure for the people around us? And so, you know, we'll host things. Like, for instance, we do this thing called, um, uh, you know, uh, raising your kids in a digital age. And, and we, will, we will just disciple parents on, hey, how do, you, how do you walk with kids in the wild, wild west of technology that we're all experimenting now or feeling for the first time? And it's crazy. You have a conversation like that, like everybody, I don't care who they are, everybody's feeling that pressure point. Christian, not a Christian. The culture's feeling the pressure point. Well, all we do is we just bring the God story down into it. And then what starts happening is in our neighborhoods, you know, parents start going, wow, we see how you guys are handling technology in your home. What's going on? And it's a moment where our families are beginning to shape culture and people are beginning to imitate. And so for us, I go, I, I, go, I want us to be like the leaders of Issachar. We understand the times. We understand the times. What's happening in a person's life individually? What's happening in the culture at broad? And then even more importantly, asking the question, hey, Jesus, what, what do you say about this? <laughs> uh, you know, one of the things that just struck me years ago is I realized I, as a pastor, I was unintentionally living with an unchristian view of the culture. And here's what I mean by that. Uh, I was living with the view of the culture that just said, hey, if we work hard enough and try hard enough, we'll end up with utopia. Like, like if we just if we can just figure this thing out, We'll bring everybody to Christ, and this will just be like a little Christian utopia here. And I went, well, that's actually not what Jesus told us would happen in the world. You know, Matthew 13, verse 30, it's just a verse that kind of cut me open a few years ago. Jesus is looking out at the disciples. He's talking about the end of the age, which we're living in. Um, I'm not saying, uh, you know, Jesus is coming tomorrow, but I'm saying uh, in every sense we are living in the last days. I believe the scripture defines it, um, whether that's a long time from now or not. We're in this kind of last generation. And... The disciples, Jesus is talking to them about the fact that there's going to be righteousness and unrighteousness. He tells a parable about the weed and the wheat, right? Uh, the, the weeds and the wheat. And the disciples say, hey, do you want us to tear out all the, the weeds? You remember the story? And Jesus says, no, you'll get it wrong. You'll tear out some of the good stuff and leave some of the bad stuff. You'll mess it all up. He says, let me do that. But this is the thing that he said to me, or this is the thing that he said to them that spoke to me, verse 30 of Matthew 13. He says, no, let both of them grow towards maturity together. Just let both of them grow together until the end. And I realized, whoa, okay, what's Jesus' view of the world? Jesus' view of this whole thing is that as we come towards the finish line of human history, is that the unrighteous will get better at being unrighteous. They'll invent ways of wickedness. Do I need to convince any of us that that's happening? No. Like, don't be surprised. Christians should be the most unsurprised. But Jesus said, this is the way it's going to go. The unrighteous will get better at being unrighteous. And he says, but the church will get better at being righteous. I believe the best days of the church were in no way. Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Not a shot. That's a starting line. A starting line. And I believe the best days are in front of us, not behind us. Right? But we have to start seeing the world this way. We have to, we have to pull it all the way down. Understand the times that we're in. And then know what to do about it. This is just some of the stuff that we're experimenting with. Saying, hey, what are we trying to do about this time that we're in? Not just with students, not just with young adults, you know, the churches that we're in, and, uh, and hoping that God will do more than we can ask or imagine. So we got just a few minutes, time for maybe two or three questions, depending on how long we go. Are there any questions? Anything that you want to? Yeah, so I know the first step in this question is prayer and fasting. Uh, but uh, I think you've also got a lot of experience 
discipling um, college students and young adults um, who are like affluent and seemingly have what they need mm-hmm. um, and uh, getting them to get involved and really be ministers, um, you know, like you said, bivocational ministers. Uh, what, you know, first we pray and fast, yes. Uh, then what's next? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think especially, and I only bring this up because you said um, students that are affluent have everything they need, they're in that kind of good spot of life. Uh, for me, the framework by which I see those kinds of students is Mark chapter 10, mm-hmm. the, the rich young ruler. Mm-hmm. And I, I love that moment because he comes to Jesus, and one of my favorite sentences in the whole Bible in that story, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. And in other words, he understood him. He didn't just visibly see him, he understood him, and he loved him. And I never really thought about this until a few years ago, but um, you know, Jesus was the very first rich young ruler. I mean... He was the firstborn, not literally born, but he was the son of heaven, like enthroned in all comfort, glory, joy, and he leaves all of that behind and swoops into the human story, right, in a very tangible way. And so here Jesus, this young man in his early 30s, is looking at another man in his early 30s. And I used to always read that story through the lens of Jesus, the poor carpenter, itinerant preacher, but I started reading it through the lens of Jesus, the first rich young ruler, and Jesus looking at the guy saying, Dude, I get you. <laughs> He's like, in fact, my portfolio is way better. I was way richer than you. Like, I had, I, I had it all. I had it all. I left it all. Hey, come follow me. Come do what I'm doing. And it said he looked at him. He loved him. He understood him. He loved him. And so I think our, our job is we meet people here, whether they're heartbroken or they feel like everything's going, is to, is to really ask God to help us not just understand them but to love them exactly where they're at. But the, the other side of the story, which is very interesting to me, is Jesus, uh, he's constantly giving everybody this grand invitation in, and he's chasing nobody, which is a very interesting thing. He, 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 he tells them, hey, come and follow me, and the guy walks away sad, and Jesus just goes on to the next <laughs> like, you know, and it's like, whoa, okay. And so there's this, that, that, you know, it's what Jesus instructs his disciples to do as they go into the villages. Find the person of peace. If they don't receive it, this is Luke 10. It says, wipe the dust off your feet, go on to the next one. Um, that doesn't square up with our, um, with the version of Jesus that we've constructed, which is he chases, 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 begs, you know, accommodates. It's like, Jesus is like, no, that's not who I am. It's not what I mean. <laughs> He's like, I'm Lord. I want you to follow me. I love you. Come, come with me. And so I think um, a lot of times with students in those seasons, it's God, help me understand them. Help me love them. Help me give them the grand invitation. Help me be the safest person for them to follow to, to, as I follow Jesus. Um, and then when they don't do it, I'm just going to keep moving. I'm going to keep walking with the runners. And, uh, and I'm just going to keep asking God to, to bring them along. And so, great question. What uh, resources do you have and use for training pastors to disciple well and to teach people within the church to disciple well? Yeah. Yeah, and, and I, I realize, I see this all the time with folks that want to make disciples and were never discipled themselves, or at least intentionally, so they don't know what to imitate. Um, and so um, we've got a thing where we actually disciple pastors. Um, we, it's called Onward, um, where guys will come in, girls will come in, they'll, they'll spend a year. They can do it with us, or they can do it from a distance. Um, so that's a thing that we do. We train that way. We also have some resources that we've created and things that I point people towards. And so after this, I'd be happy to kind of point you in some directions. If you're interested in having some follow-up conversation, uh, my email is daveclayton at ethoschurch.org. daveclayton at ethoschurch.org. I'll write that on the board and just shoot me an email. And um, we are interested in walking with and training any leaders, male or female, that are interested in doing this sort of thing in their context. And uh, so I'd love, I'd love to talk. But there's also some great resources. If I was going to point you to a resource outside of what we're doing that is kind of a great kind of think tank on this. Um, there's a guy named Bobby Harrington who is a Christian church guy. Um, he used to be uh, Church of Christ, um, but is passionate about restoration movement. Um, he leads two national ministries. One is called Discipleship.org, and the other one is called Renew. And they are aggregating a lot of great content as well um, and some training stuff, but I'd be happy to help there too. Time for one more. Is that it? Oh, oh, I, oh I had a yeah. question. Um, talk to us about your, you started off saying experimenting. Yeah. What does that mean to you? 
Yeah, so for us, um, you know, everything feels like an experiment, um, which means um, maybe the key in experimenting is this idea of we are trying this. We're not just talking about it. And we understand that the outcomes are not our responsibility, just simply obedience. And so our, our goal is to say, hey, God, we, we want to try this. When you put something in front of us, if it doesn't work, our identity is not going to be connected to the outcome. We just want to be obedient. And so, um, does that make sense? And, and so, that means we try things, we change. I mean, Sean's getting discipled right now by one of our guys, and Sean's discipling a lot of other. If he can talk about what, what a mess and an experiment this is, Garrison has been a part of this. He can talk about what a mess and experiment it is. So, if I said anything today that sounds too good to be true, it's because it is. It's always messier than this, right? And we're all, so it's this big experiment where you say, hey, we're going to try this, and trust in the Holy Spirit is going to, you know, it's like trying to swim across the ocean. You know, maybe maybe I'll make it 100 yards, and then we, we need the Lord to pick us up, put us in the boat, and take us there. And so it's just this whole, how do we do this? And so maybe a next step is sometimes we get overwhelmed, and I go, if you don't know where to go, here's a simple step for you. Pray and ask God, who is somebody that you want me to help become more like Jesus? Who's somebody that you want me to help become more like Jesus? Who's my person? And so Sydney and I, one of the questions we ask each other regularly is who are, we, who are you discipling right now, and who, who do we need to disciple next? And, if, we, and if, if either one of us can't answer that question with actual names, we go, oh, okay, we've got to get back to all the ground. And, and so just ask the Lord. That's what Jesus did in Luke 6. He spent all night praying. Hey, out of this crowd, who do you want me to take in? Right? And so that's just what we do. Hey, who do you want me to disciple? And then um, and start walking with them. And if you're stuck past that point, shoot me an email, and we'll help you. God, thank you for this opportunity to be with uh, these amazing brothers and sisters. Would you bless them? Would you encourage them? Um, would you help them to just realize that not only is this your calling on their life, it is your joy to help them live into it. And you are the one that actually does all the real work. Um, God, if I said anything today that was not representative of you or if it wasn't the full picture um, accidentally or intentionally, if I said anything, God, that was not um, the way that you would have said it in this room, Lord, uh, forgive me and help us to forgive it. Um, uh, but God, anything of you, just help it to take root and to bear fruit in our lives. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Thanks for being here.